serve in our hearts and in our lives. Holy Spirit, we thank you for this moment that we're gathered here in your presence tonight. We invite you to come to have your way. Open our hearts and open our minds to the truth of your word. Make it come to life. Give us fresh revelation that would change the way we see the world around us, that would change the way we live. And Father, we thank you that we'll leave this place on fire for God, ready to live the life you've called us to live. We love you tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Come on, give him praise one more time if you believe it. All right. Please go ahead and be seated in God's house. What an incredible honor to be here uh, tonight. My name is Dave, and I want to take just a moment um, to acknowledge your founding pastors uh, for their incredible ministry and sacrifice and leadership. Uh, Most of you will never know the pain and the sacrifice that is required to put a flag in the ground to bring up a building out of nothing and to tell the devil, you cannot have this city, you cannot have these families, you cannot have the future of this community. We're going to take ground for the kingdom. And uh, hell really attacks you. And uh, the unfortunate thing in today's church is that we have a lot of people that shine really bright, but then they burn out really fast and they don't finish the race. And uh, the thing I loved about my grandfather is his life's message was, I didn't quit. And he said, I never did anything great for God, but I did something for God every day. And I want to honor your pastors for doing that. There's no better legacy than that they're still in love with one another, in love with Jesus, in love with ministry, finishing the race strong. Can you give it up for your founding pastors? Praise God for them. Thank you. Thank you. You're an inspiration to all of us who are young and running the race. And it's such a testimony to see their children in ministry and loving the Lord. And I believe that the anointing grows generation to generation. Amen, somebody. And so praise God, the future is bright in this house. And it is an honor to be here. I am uh, one of the grandchildren of Dr. Lester Sumrall. And so I figured I'd tell you a Lester Sumrall story. You want to know a Lester Sumrall story? So my favorite story of him came uh, back when I was 17 years old. It was right before he passed. In fact, he died while I was 17, and when I just turned 17, he took me on a missions trip, and we went to China. Uh, we started in Singapore, then we went to Hong Kong, and he preached a few meetings, and, uh, and then we bought a bunch of Bibles that were in Chinese and smuggled them across the border on this train, and we started having meetings all throughout China with the underground church, and there was this one night that we had a meeting in Beijing, and people had come from all over the country in order to be there. And there was only about uh, uh, 20 pastors in the room, but they represented literally hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, these were uh, world changers in their country. And they had ridden trains, they had ridden bicycles, many of them walked many miles to be there. And uh, it was such a sweet moment that we were in this little hotel, kind of hiding in this uh, little room. And about that time, uh, Hillary Clinton actually was Secretary of State, and she was traveling around the world on her campaign for women's rights and different things, and uh, the Chinese government was using her arrival in Beijing as an excuse to make sure that they were clean, cleaning up all the activity that was anti-government, and that included a lot of pastors. So on the way to China, my grandfather told me, hey, we got a good friend who's actually in jail in China. He got caught preaching the gospel. He's still there. He's been there for a long time. And I'm thinking, why are you taking me? (laughs) This is not smart. I don't think this is a wise. Did you tell my parents, you know, like, (laughs) am I supposed to be here? And so here we are in this little hotel room in Beijing, and he's preaching on his favorite subject. He's talking about faith. And about halfway through the message, somebody busted into the room and they said, Dr. Sumrall, we have to go. The secret police have been alerted to our meeting and they're on the way to arrest everyone and take people to jail. And as soon as he said that, the rooms just, all the pastors left. And my grandfather started fussing about the fact that he didn't, I didn't get to finish my message. (laughs) I'm, I'm, I'm talking about faith. Where's everybody going? And he started to get mad. And I started to freak out. Like, we got to get out of here. We are going to die. They are going to take us to jail. And so I don't know if uh, you ever uh, saw him towards the end of his life. He's about 83 at this time, and uh, he was not in great physical condition towards the end of his life. And so he walked really slow, and he kind of just waddled like this. And he just walked like this, 
And he is about how fast he walked. So he started walking to the car and he's fussing. And so I'm pushing him like, come on, we got to go. I'm not ready to die. I'm 17 years old. I've never had sex. It's not going down like this, Grandpa. That's not the life I'm living for Jesus. We're going to go. And I'll never forget, we're outside the hotel, and he grabs me by the hand. He looks at me, and he says, young man, we live by faith, not by fear. We are going to be fine. And I said, well, faith without works is dead. Let's run. Let's go. <laughs> Fortunately, we jumped into the car, literally laid down on the floor. They covered us with blankets, drove around for like a half an hour, had to change hotels because everything's bugged. It was the craziest trip. Prayerfully, thankfully, we lived. <laughs> we left the country after that, cut the trip short. He was upset about that too. But that's my favorite Lester Sarmal story, and it's really helped me as an adult now to live by faith. Of course, on the way back, he told me that I was going to be a pastor, and I said, no, I'm not. Uh, I'm going to build companies and sell them, and I'll give the profits to the kingdom. That's how I'm going to benefit the body of Christ. And he was like, no, you're not going to do that. And I was like, yes, I am. And he was like, we well, can go to business school because that's good to have a business degree. And, uh, and I said, okay. And I thought, that's great because you're going to die by the time I get out of college. <laughs> and then I'm going to do what I want. <laughs> and then the Lord arrested me in college. And I finally, uh, I saw the path that God had for my life and how uh, God could use the gifts that I had, hopefully to make a difference if I would just surrender to him. And thankfully, uh, it's been an amazing journey since and uh, I'm honored to call him Papa, my grandfather, and for his legacy, and to uh, just do a small microcosm of what he did with his life. He was such an incredible teacher, preacher, leader, and, uh, and I love him dearly, still love him to this day, and have so many fond memories of him, as I know all of you do, and I'm thankful for generals in the faith. Amen, everybody? Uh, so back in 2010, my wife and I uh, planted I-Town Church. And uh, it's, it's just had the favor of God on it, really, I think, because of an extended anointing from my grandfather's ministry, and we're thankful to walk in his footsteps. And uh, I want to celebrate for just a moment on God, because in the 10 years that we've been a church, we've seen now 35,290 people make decisions for Christ. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Praise God for that. And it's because we're obsessed with reaching people, not with keeping people. I want people to get to heaven. I don't want people to get to I-Town. And so the church is fine, and uh, we disciple and pastor a lot of people there. But we have filled every church in Fishers in the greater Indianapolis area, and we're happy to do it because we love reaching people for Jesus. That's the heartbeat of mine and Kate's uh, life. And I actually brought a family, a picture of my family, my crew. These are my humans. Do you guys have that? There we are. There are five uh, children. They are now, let's see, they just had birthdays, 7, 8, 13, 14, 15. I should probably learn their names. No, I'm joking. It's Haley, Hannah, Henley, Tate, and George. And then the little foster baby right there, he's been on our home for a year, and we're probably going to be able to adopt him here in the next few months. We call him Baby Thunder. And, uh, and then, of course, my beautiful wife, Kate, who is the brains behind everything we do at iTown. And uh, I'm so thankful for each one of them, and they are very precious to me. And uh, my number one job is to be a Christian. My number two job is to be a husband. My number three job is to be a dad. And my number four job is to be a pastor. And as long as I keep it in that order, I feel like we'll survive and get to heaven. And that's the most important thing, right? So that's that. And I want to thank my team. I've got some of our uh, great leaders, John and Adam and Joshua, with me today. They have made iTown a, a special place. I'm so thankful for their uh, leadership as well. All right, let's jump into the Word. Luke chapter 19, if you want to turn in your Bibles. I want to spend a few moments challenging your paradigm uh, a little bit of how you see the world and our role that we should play in it uh, as we watch this little... One of my favorite things to do in Scripture is to walk through a story and pull out the principles that can apply to us in daily life. While you turn to Luke chapter 19, let me tell you a story. Well, several years ago, uh, we were at the Indianapolis Fair. It's one of our favorite traditions. So bummed that it got canceled this year. And uh, we just love, love, love the fair. And so we were at the fair, and we were enjoying our time together as a family. 
And uh, we were walking along, just having a great time. And my wife said, I've got to go over here and take a couple of kids to the restroom. And so you're in charge of our third-born daughter, Henley. And uh, Henley's a wonderful child. In fact, most people, when they meet our family, Henley's their favorite. She's got quite the personality. But she's prone to wander away. And so I felt like that was a bad decision on my wife's part to leave me in charge of the one... I'm not a very responsible parent. And so we were walking along, uh, Henley and I, looking for something to do while we were waiting for them to come back from the restroom. And I looked over and I saw the Chevy truck tent. Y'all know what I'm talking about, all the men in the house, come on, all the new models that are coming out. And I felt drawn by the spirit to the Chevy truck tent. And so I wandered over there with Henley and we started looking through this brand new Silverado Z71 decked out. And uh, I'm looking at it, all the, oh man, it's so nice on the end. Look at the dash and all the leather's so fine. I just, someday I need to drive one of these trucks. And right about that time, I turned around and Kate was there. And she was like, hey, what are you doing? I was like, look at this truck. And she was like, where's Henley? I was like, I have no idea, but look at this truck. It's beautiful. I need one of these. And she was like, seriously, where's Henley? And I thought she was standing right next to me, but she wasn't. And so all of a sudden, it was like, well, she's probably just around the corner. And we looked, and she wasn't there. Well, she's probably just in one of the other vehicles. We looked, and she wasn't there. And there's that moment as a, a parent that it's like you're thinking in your mind, it's, it's okay. We're going to fire in a second. And then you get past that moment, and you're like, my God in heaven, I've lost a child. Like, I've, like she's gone. I don't know where she's at, and I don't know if I'll be able to find her. You start having these thoughts of, like, Kate will never forgive me. Our marriage will be ruined. I'll have to live this life of, like, searching the rest of my life for this child that I lost because of this stupid pickup truck that's really nice, but, like, it's not worth my kid. And so now we're panicked, and we're running through the fairgrounds trying to find Henley. I want you to capture the heart of a parent in that moment because I wasn't ever stopping and thinking, I've got four more. Four out of five ain't bad. Just make another one. They all look the same. Not a big deal. No, I didn't care about the one, the four children that I had that were found. I only cared about the one that was lost. And my obsession was with finding the one that was lost. And the people that had the greatest favor in my life at that moment were the ones that would drop whatever they were doing and help me find Henley. And I want to shift your perspective just a little bit because when God looks down from heaven, he sees his creation. And every human who's living on the planet are his children. They were all created in his image. Every one of us he knew before we were formed in our mother's womb. Every one of us had a book written on us before the day that we breathed a single breath. And so when he looks down from heaven, he sees his children, and some are what the Bible would say are found. Some are in the family of God, but some are yet lost. They're disconnected from the Father. And he is not concerned as much with those who are found as he is with those who are lost. And if you want the favor of God on your life and the favor of God on your family and the favor of God on this church, then you would just have to be obsessed with the one thing that Jesus is obsessed with. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. So on this side of the cross, Christianity is no longer about you. Yes, God wants to bless you. God wants to prosper you. God wants to bless your marriage, set you free, take you on a journey. And we do all that at Itown as well. But as soon as you understand that you have crossed from death to life, the job is to go everywhere and tell everyone that they too don't have to pay the price for their own sins, that Jesus died in our place, that heaven and hell are a reality, and that we must be forgiven for our sins by believing in Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that when you do that, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me, and I'm telling you now, go and preach the gospel, and behold, if you do, I am with you always to the end of the age. So a sign that you have the presence of God on your church isn't necessarily all the gifts and ministries of the Holy Spirit because they only existed so that people would come to Christ. The first thing that happened on the day of Pentecost was not everybody laid out under modesty cloths. It was 3,000 people got saved. So the sign of the Holy Spirit coming upon your church is the fulfillment of the Great Commission. It's being obsessed with those who are lost. And so we see that in Jesus' life. The title of this message is A Walk, A Sinner, and a Tree. 
Jesus took a walk one day and found a guy that all of us have heard before. Verse 1 of Luke 19, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Now, Jericho was this very rich oasis city. They called it the city of fragrance or the city of roses. It was the paradise of God. It was this last stop that you would come to before ascending almost 4,000 feet in elevation to the city of Jerusalem. And so it was a place that many people passed through. Jesus went through this town many times from the area or region of Galilee on the way up to the temple. It was very common for people. So verse 2, a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. We'll call him Zac. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. So we only know Zac based on a couple of things that we read from this story. And many of us have had the felt board stories if you've grown up in church about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he? Okay. We don't have to sing it. So we know him by his job. He's a tax collector. We know him because his financial status, he was wealthy. And uh, what we don't realize is that he was a traitor to his people and to his country. Because he worked for the occupying government that the Jewish people despised. And he was actually a thief because what he would do is he would take money. What they allowed tax collectors to do was to take the tax from the people trim a little off the top, and give the rest to the government. So they'd overcharge in taxes, and that's how they became very wealthy. And Jericho had a very high balsam trade, which was incredibly expensive in that day. And so the taxes were unbelievably high. And so this guy was ridiculously wealthy because there was a lot of money for him to skim. And so people really hated this guy. He was the worst. When people would think about him, they'd think, ah, He's the worst. We don't like that guy because he's a thief and he's a traitor to our people. But verse 3 says he wanted to see who Jesus was. But being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. Man, there's so much in that verse. The first thing I want you to see is that he's this known criminal, the worst of the worst. But here's the principle. He, too, wanted to see Jesus. If you're taking notes tonight, jot this first thing down. The world is searching for Jesus. Because the reality is sin doesn't work, people are hurting, and Jesus is the answer. We have to have that confidence as followers of Christ. They're looking for hope. They're not looking for religion. They're not looking for condemnation. They're not looking for judgment. They're looking for hope that their life could change, that, that literally something could be better. And, and they're looking for something authentic. And when they look, they think, well, maybe Jesus could be the answer. They're genuinely searching for answers. This is true of every community, of all people, from all races and backgrounds. There is this God-shaped hole on the inside of all of us that says, man, there's got to be something more. There's got to be something real. What is it about this life? The Bible says that God put that in us so that maybe we might find our way to him. So everybody out there is already on this search. And I want you to notice, if you look back at verse 3, he wanted to see who he was, but... Being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. That's a very significant thing for us to understand because being short would not preclude you from meeting Jesus. Being short would not keep you from being introduced to the Savior. So we have to understand that it's not imperfections that keep people from Jesus. And I'm not knocking short people here. This isn't a short person joke. We love you all. God has made us all in different heights, and we celebrate them all. But we erroneously oftentimes as Christians think that sin keeps people from Jesus. It does not. Because Jesus paid the price for our sin. We think that we have to get it together to get to God, and we actually kind of project that to people. You have to kind of get your life together before you can become a part of what we're doing look like us, act like us, talk like us, believe like us, behave like us, then maybe we'll consider voting on letting you become one of us. That's the wrong message. See, we get to God to get it together. And we have to make sure that we keep that right because it's not imperfections that keep people from Jesus. It's people who keep people from Jesus. Now, don't miss this. Look at this. Jesus was there present. Zacchaeus is trying as a sinful man to get to the Savior, but he couldn't, not because he was short, but because the people following Jesus were in the way.
You ever thought about the fact that the things that surround Jesus are often the things that keep people from seeing Jesus? That we could be the biggest distraction to a dying and lost world from coming to know the, the Lord? That the environments that we create, the services that we hold, the moments that we gather together, that unintentionally we can become a part of the crowd that makes it difficult for hurting people to get close to the Lord? Isn't that crazy? we got to be really careful about and very intentional about the culture that we set in church. In fact, uh, many years ago, I was helping this church, and they said, man, we really want to reach people. We, we want to we win the world for Jesus. And I said, but do you really? Because, like, everybody's for change until something changes. Everybody likes change. Oh, change is great until, until something actually changes. And then everybody's like, why didn't we vote on that? I don't like that. That's bad. And so they said, we really want to reach people, Pastor. We, we just want to see lots of people come to Christ. And, man, we want to fulfill the Great Commission. And I said, do you really? Because let's kind of take a look at it. So we took a look at their church. And guess what? They're the most unfriendly group of people on the weekend you ever met in your life. Man, they loved each other, but they did not love new people. They did not want to talk to the new guests that was in the hallway they didn't want to give them any attention. They wanted to catch up with their friends. And they didn't want to have any excellence on when the service started and when the service stopped because they just like to kind of free flow whatever's comfortable for them because that's what they'd done for a long time. They didn't want to check their kids into the actual nurseries and preschool programs because they just wanted their kids to run to class and then run back out of class whenever they wanted to, which is great when you just have the family of God together and everybody knows each other and it's a very small spiritual community. But when you have unchurched people there that don't know anything about that and they're concerned about safety and protection for their children and who belongs to whom and who's responsible for what, and I want to make sure my kids are safe and protected, they don't understand that everybody here knows everybody because they're not a part of the family. They were ignoring guests and having conversations with each other. As guests would come to the door, they wouldn't open the door for them or have a conversation with them. And they were almost annoyed when people would say, hey, where, where are the nurseries? Where are we supposed to go? Oh, down there. You know, they said, so at the end of the day, I challenged them like, hey, I don't know if you actually really want to reach people. Because we'll have to make some changes. There's some things that we'll have to do that are going to be uncomfortable, some sacrifices and it's easy for all of us to fall into because the disciples did it. Matthew chapter 19, verse 13. The people brought their little children to Jesus so he could put his hands on them and pray for them. And his followers told them to stop. We got to get these kids out of here. We got to shut this thing down. This is getting too young. I'm a little uncomfortable with all the noise in church and all these people that don't know when to stand and when to sit and when to be quiet. And it's just, there's always been this movement, this demonic movement to keep children and young people out of the church. Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them because the kingdom of heaven belongs to people just like these. Listen, we are called to be a funnel, not a filter. Our job is to get as many people to Jesus as possible. Don't ever stop people from coming to Jesus. Listen, I say to our church all the time, if we don't have a little bit of crack on the doorstep, we're not reaching the right people. You ought to be sitting next to somebody that smells like weed. We ought to have a bunch of people that smell like alcohol from last night. And I don't care what the world says about it. We just need to make sure that we are reaching lost people because Jesus gave his life for broken people. And so we need to be obsessed with broken people. we got to make sure that we're getting as many people, just like Mark 16, 15. Go everywhere, tell everyone. Go everywhere, tell everyone. Go everywhere, tell everyone. That's the message that Jesus gave us. But when we lose all of that, we think that we have to somehow be the filter. Oh, you got to get your life together. Oh, we don't have people that look like that or dress like that or act like that. Come up in here. Our job is to catch the fish. It's Jesus' job to clean them. He'll take them on a journey. The Holy Spirit will clean them up. He's the one that takes us on that journey of sanctification. And none of us were perfect when we got saved either. So we just need to let them take their journey. But think about it for a second. Most of us here probably own at least one copy of something from Beachbody. P90X, Insanity, some type of home fitness program. And we bought that not because Tony Horton got on that infomercial and was like, look, you are fat and you are lazy and you'll never amount to anything if you don't buy this DVD. We ought to have been like, man, you're a punk. I'm going to change the channel. We don't buy into that. What he did was he showed us the product, then he showed us all these people with abs, and we were like, I want abs. I'll order that. 
right? Because it's the power of a changed life, witnessing the power of what it does. I just want you to know you're the best witness. You're the best testimony. Look, at I was addicted, and now I'm free. I was broken, and now I'm healed. My marriage was a mess, and now God's delivered it and put it together, and we're in love. Man, I used to be bankrupt, and now I'm blessed. My life, I was lost, and now I am found. God will take you on that journey if we'll allow him to. It's not our job to be the filter of who's supposed to be here. Let Jesus make sure the right people are in the house. Check this out. So verse 19 or verse 4 of Luke 19. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him. He's just trying to get a clear picture of who Jesus really is since Jesus was coming that way. So here's Zach. He's unbelievably wealthy. He's got this reputation. Everybody knows him in town. He's the Jim Ursay of his community. Everybody knows he owns the Colts and he's got a lot of money. Mr. Lucas here, you know, so it's a big deal. But look at what he does. He throws dignity out the window. And I'm not trying to paint an inappropriate picture, but everybody in those days wore robes and this dude's climbing a tree. <laughs> he's got his Gucci little loafers on. He's got his Ferragamo belt, his Hugo Boss jacket, and he's climbing a tree just because he wants to see Jesus. But here's a point that you can't miss. People who are far from Christ will sacrifice dignity for clarity. He's just trying to see who Jesus is, and he's willing to put himself in a compromised situation where he's uncomfortable as a very wealthy, recognizable man climbing a tree like a child just because he wants to see what this Jesus is all about and if Jesus could give him hope too. And I want you to think about this for a minute because guests do the same thing when they come through our doors on the weekend. Because you know the devil works overtime in people's minds. He manipulates their minds all the time and sells them lies. And so here's the inner dialogue for most people who are far from God. I'm going to try church today because I, I have no more hope in life. I have nowhere else to turn. And I need to see if Jesus really is the answer because I'm hurting and I can't overcome this addiction. I know I can't save myself. I know I can't change. And maybe there's hope at church. But I'm a little bit worried because I've never been before and I know I don't have the right clothes and I probably have more tattoos than everybody there and I may have piercings in my nose or, or I may have a child but no husband and they might judge me for that. They might single me out. What if nobody talks to me? What if, what if lightning strikes? Like what if the roof falls in because that, like, the Lord strikes me with lightning because of all of my sin and then their building will be broken. It'll be all my fault and I'll be dead. I mean they just go through all these crazy things in their minds. And so many times they come into churches and they meet these Christians that are like, you're a sinner. You want to meet Jesus? You can go to heaven. And you're thinking, I don't know. Are you going to be there? <laughs> Eternity's a long time. Sure. I feel like you were baptized in vinegar, you know. I'm just not sure. So here's this person that comes. They're giving up their dignity. They're coming on to our turf feeling uncomfortable because they're just seeking clarity. If we're sensitive to that and aware of that, we can create wonderful and warm, welcoming environment just like Jesus would because that's who Jesus was after. Verse 5, Jesus reached the spot. I love that. Circle that in your Bible if you're taking notes. He reached the spot. There was a designated spot that Jesus was walking to that day, and he stopped when he reached the designated spot, the divine appointment, and he looked straight up into the tree, and he said, Zach, why don't you come down right now? Because I'm coming to your house today. Think about that. So Jericho if you know the history, is a colony of priests. It's actually the priests would work in, a, in the temple up in Jerusalem for a season. It's kind of like working like a firefighter. You know, they work like two or three days in a row, and then they have a couple weeks off. Well, the priests kind of worked like that. They'd go up to the temple, and they'd work for a little while. All their families would stay in Jericho, and they'd come back down, and they'd live in Jericho. So some of the holiest people in the entire nation of Israel lived in Jericho. All these great Law followers, all these people that theologically they would have aligned pretty closely with Jesus outside the fact that they didn't accept him as the Savior. They believed everything he believed and taught everything he taught. 
And yet none of them were selected that day. Jesus hung out with a notorious sinner. Traveling to the outskirts of town because he specifically wanted to route his journey past a guy who he would know would be at that moment in a tree. There's no coincidence here. In fact, jot this down if you're taking notes. Jesus didn't come for anyone. He came for someone. Jesus sees specific people. He calls him by name. He knew that there was a divine appointment that day. And I applaud Jesus because I don't know why the Lord called me into ministry. Names are impossible for me to remember. I'm terrible at it. I was telling our leadership school last night. I was like, I am awful at names. Just awful. I try and try and try and still with half my church. I'm like, hey, man. Because, you know, you have that place where you're like, I think it's Brian, but if I'm wrong, it's going to be really bad because I've known this guy for like five years now. Bad with names. And Jesus calls this guy by his name. It's important that we assign people names. In fact, I would encourage you, we encourage our church to do this. Have a list of people, two or three names, actual names that you're praying for. People that you want to see come to Christ. And you're praying for them. Lord, I, I just rebuke all of the deception that's blinded their minds. I thank you for Bill today. And that someone will come across his path, Lord. Just raise his spiritual uh, desire, his hunger, Lord. I pray that there would be a moment in his life that he'd cry out to you. That he'd be receptive to the invitation to church. Or, or that someone would be able to share the gospel. Or even if you'd open the door for me to share with him. Just pray that over people. Pray for them by name. Should be, it's important to write it down. Now, verse 6. So listen to this. He comes, he comes down at once and welcomed him gladly. Again, we see this notorious sinner. They're open. It's not the gospel that they have a problem with. It's not Jesus they have a problem with. It's Christians. It's the culture that we create. It's the way that we act. It's the way that we represent Christ. Christianity has a branding problem. Because it's a wonderful faith. It's the good news of the gospel. Everybody in the world would want it if it was just presented correctly for them to see. Even Zach comes down and he's pumped. But look at this in verse 7. All the people saw this and began to mutter. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Now I can't endorse this program any longer because it is just a horrible, horrible show. But back when I was a young man... Saturday Night Live was not as bad as it is today. Still wasn't a good program, but y'all remember, some of you that are older, they had a little skit called The Church Lady. And the church lady would say, he's a sinner. Look at all these sinners. Isn't that how we call it? Sinners. Woo! Sinner, sinner. We got that long, crooked finger. Sinners, sinners. Woo! I have issues, but they are sinners. muttering church people do that all the time mutter 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 oh can you believe they went over there and hung out with them and did that with them i just did they know but jesus leaned in relationally to those he disagreed with theologically he spent time with people that didn't see the world the way he did because it's easy to make a point but it's hard to make a difference and god hasn't called the church to make a point He's called us to make a difference. So it's easy to wave our finger at the world and tell them our talking points. Because we know the world has lost its mind. Y'all realize that, right? The world has lost its mind, especially during COVID. The world has lost its mind. Public service announcement. And I'm giving you permission to not participate, okay? You don't have to lose your mind with them. They're crazy. The world is crazy. But the truth is, Church gets real messy when you start making a difference. Now, we don't compromise the gospel. It is unchanging. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. What the Bible said was sin 2,000 years ago is sin today. We're very traditional in our theology and in our beliefs because the Bible is the Word of God, and God has the right to be God, and whether I agree with it or not really doesn't matter. I don't get an opinion if God has one. But at the same time, we need to get better at understanding people on their journey and what's required to make a difference. You see, Jesus was willing to lean in relationally to these people. Jot this down if you're taking notes. You may ruin your reputation helping someone find salvation. Because self-righteous religious people love to throw stones at people that are making a difference. 
They will always be critical of grace because they can't comprehend it because grace can't be understood. It doesn't make sense how God would give people so many chances. It doesn't make sense why God would love us. But it's fascinating to me how religious people disqualify others for that which disqualifies them. Don't judge people because they sin differently than you. Isn't it amazing how we do that? Did you see them? Woo, they were out there smoking after church, just smoking up a storm. They're going to hell and smelling like it in the process. I heard they were drinking too. Woo, that's bad, bad, bad. Can you believe that? And they were over there, all those people's house. Those other people don't even serve the Lord. They're over there every Saturday night till 2, 3 o'clock. Well, you know nothing good happens when you're out past 12. On the way home from church. Then we stop. Yes, I'll have a Baconator. Give me a large fry, a Diet Coke. While we gossip. Sin is sin. If we'll just back up and recognize that, it'll change our perspective. We are all sinners. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. If Jesus' qualification for dining with people was no sin, he would have eaten alone his entire life. He never would have had dinner with anybody. That statement was true all the time. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner was true for every meal Jesus ate. But if we ever forget that, then we will create an us-them mentality. Well, we're the ones that God's proud of, and they're the ones that are living wrong, and it's us-them. No, it's all us. (laughs) We're farther along the journey. This is a spiritual hospital. Praise the Lord. We checked in a little bit earlier. Should be a lot healthier. But we're all on the same journey. So here's Jesus. He's hanging out with Zach, and they're watching football. They're playing some hoops. I don't know, maybe some Nintendo Wii or something, having a good time. And Zacchaeus, in verse 8, he stands up. And he says, Lord, look, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. We don't really know what happens in this gap of several hours. But as Jesus leans into him, he comes to this conclusion. If I have cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. You see, the thing that's fascinating is the further we get from Jesus, the more stuff matters. The closer we get to Jesus, the less stuff matters. Disconnection from God creates dependence upon possessions. Because money is a wonderful false god. And so Zach all of a sudden sees Jesus for who he is. He spends time with Jesus and understands how loving and amazing God is in his life. And stuff, his false God, drops from his life. It loses all of its power. The Bible says in Luke 16, 13, no servant can serve two masters. You can't serve God and money or the God of mammon, the the curse that's on money. And so the Jewish law was that you were supposed to pay one-fifth above what was taken for the sin of extortion, which is what he had committed. But what he did was he paid four times the amount. That was the amount that was required of a regular thief. So he said, I'm going above and beyond. One of the evidences of a changed life is just irrational generosity. I'll give it all away because all of it's God's, and if it's God's will, it's God's bill, and I don't care. I know that he'll multiply it back to me, and even if he doesn't, I just know he called me to do it, and so I'm happy. Because it wasn't my stuff in the first place. And it didn't change his life. It was just the evidence of his changed life. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. So Zach's response didn't earn his salvation. It was just evidence of it. All of a sudden he becomes irrationally generous. And he wants to bless everyone around him, which should be the story of our lives. We should be the kind of people that immediately as God touches us, and this is why I think we need to pray that prayer, Lord, recapture to us the joy of our salvation. Remember the moment you were like, really? I don't have to go to hell? I don't have to burn forever? I don't have to pay the price for all the things I've ever done wrong? Woo-hoo! Feels like you won the lottery, right? It's amazing. And then you want to tell everybody else in the world, this is the most incredible thing that I've found. You too should give your life to Jesus because you get to spend eternity in heaven. It's going to be amazing. Why? Because Jesus came to seek and to save what's lost. Luke 19.10. That word seek literally means to seek in order to find or to locate. The word save means to rescue from danger or destruction. 
to make well, to be healed, to be restored. That's God's plan for us and for humanity. So think about that. They're all his. You can't lose. They're lost because they were his. You can't. I've never lost a Ferrari because I ain't never had one. I can't be like, oh, there you are. That would just be stealing because it's not mine. Right? So you can't lose what wasn't previously yours. That's why humanity is lost because they were all his children and they wandered from him because of the sin of Adam. And they can become found because they're children of God. Number three, as we close, Jesus was not passively wandering. He was intentionally searching. There was a divine appointment that day. And I want you to know that there are hundreds of thousands of divine appointments all around this church. People who are looking for hope. If I could get some keys as we close. And Jesus is scheduling these divine appointments if we will just be aware of them as a church. We pray for revival so many times, and yet even I'm guilty of not looking into the eyes of people and slowing down my life enough to recognize that revival isn't going to come just because masses of people somehow flood into big services. It comes because you and I are living our daily lives as a reflection of God, looking into the eyes of broken people and saying, hey, there's hope for you. And what God did for me, he will do for you because he is no respecter of persons. And I would like to invite you to a service or I would like to invite you to a conversation that will forever change your life just as it did mine. That's how revival will come, one person at a time. Jesus is intentionally searching for every human on the planet. And just as you and I have a God story of something we heard on the radio and some person we watched on television and then some book we read, some random conversation with a stranger and some moment that we wandered into a church and we found that that was our moment and we surrendered our life to Jesus and we've never been the same since. God wants you to play that role in thousands of people's lives all across this city. So here's three things you can do. Number one, Open your heart to people. You can't love God without loving what He loves, and He loves people. So love people of all shapes, of all colors, of all sizes, of all backgrounds, of all nations, of all religions. Love people. I'm not saying you condone their sinful behavior. We still call sin, sin. But the Bible says that we speak the truth in love. Well, love has to be expressed over time. I don't feel like people love me that are telling me the truth who don't know me. They may be saying the truth, but I still want to punch them in the face because I don't know you, bro. That, feel, that hurts that you would say that about me. So we have to build a relationship. We have to build some type of trust so that there's a sense of love so that then we can speak the truth. Hey, you can't sleep with them. You, can't, you shouldn't be looking at that. You shouldn't drink that. You shouldn't sniff that. You shouldn't smoke that. Probably shouldn't watch that. Shouldn't go there. Those are some things that need to change in your life, but I'm a trusted relationship because I've leaned in. We've spent some time together. Can't do that if your heart's not open. They're, they're, they're not a problem to solve. It's not, man, these people are just ruining our country and they're ruining our world and they've got all these liberal theologies and philosophies that are so anti-Christ. Yes, all those things are true, but they're not the problem. It's we're, Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the forces of darkness in this world. And we have to recognize that it's not them. It's the devil that's controlling their minds. And that's the battle that we have to fight. We have to win the battle in the spiritual before we can win the battle in the natural. And when we come armed, ready for that, we understand understand. Hey, God has given me the warfare that demolishes strongholds. You know what spiritual strongholds are? Every thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. It's wrong thinking. And so we have the opportunity to bring truth, to share God's love. Open your heart to people. Number two, become a part of the church on the rock tree. Don't be the crowd, be the tree. Be a part of elevating people to be able to get a clear picture of Jesus. Let's be careful as we watch our culture that we don't forget that heaven and hell hangs in the balance every weekend and that people who come on this property are one step away from eternal security, from saying yes to Jesus and saying no to sin. And your role can be the difference. How you greet them in the parking lot and how you acknowledge them at the door and how you check in their kids and how you seat them in these pews and how you help them as you worship. 
And as you show them the love of God will make all the difference in their life to help them because they will see that there's something different about you and I want what you have because I see the light of Christ in your eyes. Not a Christian club that's closed to outsiders, but the family of God that's welcoming everybody who will come through these doors. And we tell people, you may not look like us, talk like us, act like us, behave like us, or even believe like us, but you are welcome here because Jesus has paid the price for you whether you're ready to accept it or not. We're just happy you're here. And I love how people say, oh, their church. We people say this all the time about I-Town. Their church, half that church goes to the club on Saturday night. I saw them out. You know, they were down in that strip. We have this little strip called Broad Ripple. I saw them down in the clubs coming out of the club at 3 o'clock in the morning. They ain't living for Jesus. They got a bunch of sinners in that church. And my response is, why were you there? How did you see that? Hey, at least they're in church. It's not because we water down the gospel. It's because the Holy Spirit is drawing them. And we're providing an opportunity just like Jesus to allow them to sense the presence of God and allow the Holy Spirit to do his job to bring conviction. Be a part of the tree. Don't be a part of the crowd. Don't make it difficult for people to see Jesus. Number three, just simply invite someone to church. Invite somebody to church. If every week every one of us brought one, Imagine the impact, the multiplication that would take place years from now. It'd be hundreds of thousands if we all every week just brought one. Because I'm telling you, Henley's life hangs in the balance. And when we gather together to worship God, he inhabits the praises of his people, but not for the purpose of patting you on the back because he loves the way that you sing. These moments are not about us. They're about the mission of seeking and saving that which is lost. And if you want the end time revival, the Holy Spirit to be poured out on this place, the number one focus has to be that we fulfill the Great Commission. That we allow our lives to be aligned with the mission of Christ and that we are obsessed. We will not rest until every person that lives in this community is headed to heaven because Jesus gave his life so that none should perish, but that all would have everlasting life. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord Jesus, I pray that you would refresh our passion for lost people. Help us to be reminded that all of us are just one breath away from eternity. And that you're focused on those who are lost. God, I pray that every day as we leave our homes, as we go to school, as we go out to the coffee shop, as we go to work, that you would open our eyes to the people around us, that we would put the face of Jesus on every person that we meet, and that we would never forget that we might be the only Jesus that people ever see. God, help us to be great ambassadors for you. Help us to boldly carry the light of Christ to a world that's growing increasingly dark. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that you have given us to be alive in this critical time. We believe that we are drawing near to the end of this world. And we're so thankful, God, that you have chosen us. Noah's not here, and Abraham's not here, and David's not here. God, you chose us for such a time as this. What an honor that you have given us this moment to steward. God, we know revival is around the corner. We know in times of darkness that light shines the brightest. You promised that you would build your church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. So, Father, I pray for boldness. I pray for a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit. I pray for the power of God to touch this congregation, this leadership, this church, this house. Father, I thank you that it will be a beacon of hope and light to people who are hurting and who are broken and who are addicted and who are lost. Father, I thank you that this will be a place where people can come and find hope and find life in Christ. God, tonight we pray. Here we are. Send us. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I know that this is a believer's service, but I never like to go anywhere without giving people the opportunity to make sure that Jesus is the Lord of their life. So I'm not going to make you stand. I'm not going to make you come to the front. This is between you and the Lord. There's things like water baptism to make a public statement about the decision that you make, but this moment is between you and Jesus. Maybe you're here today.
And for one reason or another, you've drifted from the Lord. These are trying times. There's a lot of confusion out there. It's easy for us to take one or two small steps, and one day we wake up and we realize, man, we're not where we should be. Maybe that's your story today. Maybe you find yourself, for one reason or another, far from God. Don't leave here that way. If that's you, with no one looking around, would you take just a moment to lift up your hand and say, Dave, that's me. I I need to pray tonight. I need to make Jesus the Lord of my life. Maybe again or maybe for the first time, if you would say, that's me. Would you just lift your hand up high for just a moment all across this room? Awesome. Yeah, that's great. All right, you can put your hands down. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer. You can pray it quietly in your heart. You just need to mean it. It's between you and the Lord. Just say, Lord Jesus, I surrender to you. Forgive me today for all of my sin. I repent. I make you my Lord. Help me to live the life you've called me to live. In Jesus' name I pray. Now just open your palms if you would, if you're comfortable, all across this room, every one of you. Let me just pray. One final prayer blessing over you. Father, we thank you for this incredible church. We thank you for this amazing legacy that's being built here, 36 years of faithfulness. We thank you for all the prayer and all the sacrifice and all the souls that have been won from this place, all the churches that have been launched, all the sons and daughters of the faith that have been sent. But Father, we celebrate that the best days are yet to come, that you are building an army And that revival is coming. So, Father, I pray a double portion anointing on every person here. I thank you that you are raising up a generation of warriors, world changers and history makers. Father, I thank you that tonight will be a defining moment in our spiritual journey, that we will shift our paradigm and how we see the world, and that we will make a lasting impact, a legacy for generations to come if you should tarry. As we make this city very difficult to go to hell from. We thank you that we are only building one name, and his name is Jesus. You promised that if we would lift you up, that you would draw all people to yourself. So we pray that this would be a Jesus church. We thank you that it already is. Help us to grow day by day. Help us to be bold and confident by the power of the Holy Spirit in sharing our faith with every person we meet. And God, we thank you for the revival that will come. We love you tonight with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Come on, if you believe it, give God praise. Pastor.